You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. don't know who Stevie Wonder is, you got to go ask your parents and then head over to Spotify and you can thank me later for the gift that waits for you there. Isn't she lovely? Funny thing about that song, Stevie Wonder, he actually wrote it about his daughter. Hmm. Here's the lyric. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Less than one minute old. I can't believe what God has done through us. He's given life to one. But isn't she lovely, made from love? The song's going to be in your head for about a month. Sorry. So when you hear the word lovely paired with the word church, that might seem a little odd, right? Your head may do like the RCA dog thing where you can, hang on. Because I think it is easy, right, to see the church's failures, which are easy to see, and not her beauty, which, like all beauty, lies just beneath the surface. Even in the church, I've found that the cynical sneer sometimes finds a home. It's kind of become fashionable to be critical and hard-edged and cynical, maybe. And I get it, because before I'm a pastor, I'm also a Christian, first and foremost. And so while I love the church, I'm also a part of it, which means close enough to get hurt. And I think that in our post-nominal Christian 2023 world, to stand up and say, I believe the church is lovely, that's probably one of the most countercultural things that you can probably say. But speaking personally, after three months of not gathering with you guys on Sunday mornings, I'm more captivated by, I am more excited for, And I am more resolved than ever that, yes, she is absolutely lovely. So this is the first week of this series. Here's why we're doing it. Maybe you're on the bubble this morning, and you're kind of hedging your bets about whether or not church is worth it. This is for you. Maybe you're brand new to Jesus, and you have no idea what church even means. That's cool. This is for you. Maybe you feel like you've burned out, you've seen too much, you've been hurt, and this is your last shot. This is for you. And so for today, week one, just a little bit of intro, here's where we're going. We're going to take a look at five common objections to church, especially in 2023. And then we're going to provide a really simple biblical counterbalance. We're going to see the church in her infancy, just one minute old. So whenever we do these series, I think it's helpful to give you guys a little bit of introduction. So um, first point, just to let you know, um, this is going to be a little bit different of a series in the sense that most teaching series we do here are um, expositional preaching in nature. And all that means is we take like a book, like we did with Habakkuk, and you walk through it verse by verse, kind of unfolding it together. 
Um, this one is going to be topical, which just means they're going to be moving around a little bit more. Okay, so heads up. Second thing that I want to let you know about is this one's arranged pretty intentionally. So week one, we're gonna, today, we're going to be talking about those objections and take a look at a really simple biblical counterbalance. Next week, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the images in Scripture that God uses to describe his church. Week three, we're going to talk about the mission of the church and why that is so important. Week four, enemies and essentials. How to kill a church and then how to make it thrive. And then we're going to wrap up by answering and asking, really, eight questions that everybody wonders but nobody really asks. So that's kind of where we're going. Last little bit of intro, I know when we do these kind of theology series, which we kind of fall into every springtime or so, a lot of you go, gosh, that was helpful, give me some more resources, I want some more stuff. And so um, we've done this with our Holy Sexuality series this past fall, um, we had a Holy Spirit teaching series um, about a year ago, and so we've created kind of a virtual bookshelf for you. If you want some more books on this, uh, this idea of church, if you want to study some more with your community group, um, just head to nchapel.com resources, and there's a bunch of books there, just some helpful tools for you. Whenever we gather these resources, a couple of things that we shoot for as we equip you, um, something that's affordable, so all these books are about 20 bucks or so, something that's accessible, meaning you don't need a Bible college or a seminary degree to read these books, and something that's approachable. So all of these resources and writers are writing in a way where they write about stuff that matters. And so if you want more info on that, ncchapel.com resources. For those of you watching online, um, Matt Brumfield, our online community pastor, is going to post a link in the comment thread. So before we get to our text this morning, a very beautiful portrait of the early church we're going to get there, but before we do, I think it's helpful to actually raise objections to church in 2023. Why don't people do church? Some pretty valid reasons. We'll get to them. I think there's five of them, and they all start with the letter I. So for you alliteration-loving note-taker types, I see you. I love you. These are concerns that I hear as a pastor. They're concerns that um, we talk about sometimes face-to-face -face in my office. They're concerns that I read about. They're concerns that some I've even felt myself. Um, these are not exhaustive. I'm sure you can name a few more. But in my experience, these are five of the most common. And I offer these not to stoke any sleeping embers in your heart, but just as a thoughtful, hopefully thoughtful, jumping-off point for this series. Because before we look at what the church is supposed to be or what the church can be, it is helpful just to kind of name our own experience of what church sometimes is. So, why don't people do church? Objection number one, the intimidating objection. I think this is the most common, actually. Um, and it's simple. It goes like this. I might go to church or I might dig in. I just don't know what it's about. Now here's the thing, church is like any other culture. The longer you're a part of it, the harder it is to actually see it. It's kind of like the theological equivalent of, like, does the fish know it's wet? <laughs> All right, if you come to a new church, or maybe this is your first week here, maybe you're watching online, and you're going, well, how do these guys know all the words to all these songs? What is that? Where'd they learn this? What else do they know that I don't know? And where in the world is the book of Habakkuk? Right? I know what happened. It's because when you realize we were going to do Habakkuk, 90% of you that have been walking with Jesus, you're, you know, we were church people, you go, well, I shouldn't look at the table of contents. I should know where it is, but I don't, so i got to go there. 
I think we've been going to church or been a part of church so long that we've forgotten how intimidating sometimes it can be. But not just in what happens for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning or so. As soon as you get the, the idea that this is about relationships, and as soon as you realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to be vulnerable to make church work, that's a whole different level of intimidation, isn't it? Especially in our age of division, right? So this is the first objection, the intimidating objection. Objection number two, the institutional objection, goes like this. Church now is not what church was. I've read the book of Acts, I've read the New Testament, and this does not look like that. It feels like this has gone too far off the rails. Whatever church has become, it's not what it was. Can't we just like read God's word in our living rooms and pray with our families at dinner and then go serve soup somewhere? Why can't we just like be good people and love our neighbors? When I was in seminary, I came across a writer who incisively expressed this sentiment like this. Just, this is really biting, but it's good. Christianity started in Galilee as a relationship. It grew throughout Judea, where it became a movement. Then it flooded into Greece, where it became a philosophy. It expanded to Rome, where it became policy, moved to Europe, where it became an organization, and then migrated to the United States, where it became a business. As one of my favorite modern poet theologians, an Irishman named Bono, put it, Jesus never let me down. Jesus used to show me the score, but then they put Jesus in show business, and now it's hard to get in the door. I think it's a very insightful comment. So that's the institutional objection. Like, this is just too far gone. I'm out. Objection number three, the impractical objection, kind of goes like this. Church just doesn't really help. <laughs> Let's run with this one for a bit. Let's back up and consider the average, like, experience of a Sunday morning for most of us. You get up early on a Sunday morning a few times a month. The average, by the way, in the United States for evangelical Christians is twice a month, by the way, in case you're curious. You get up, you try your best to make it happen. After waiting in a longer-than-average Starbucks line, you come into a room where you're asked to stand and sing, which is something you never do in any other place in our culture except maybe at a football game. You sing songs you don't know with words that are unfamiliar next to people that you may not even like. You listen to somebody talk for 45 minutes, give or take, <laughs> citing words from a rabbi who lived on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, and then you're asked to give your money, pitch in and help, serve in some way, a few other miscellaneous odds and ends. You go back home late for lunch, ready for a nap, maybe in time for the early game. And then Monday comes. <laughs> with all of its set of problems, and whatever was said on Sunday morning by now seems like a distant and detached memory because we are real people with real problems in real time, and abstract theological concepts just don't help. Often, church feels like having a really bad migraine headache and somebody handing you a medical textbook. <laughs> it's not helpful. That's objection number three. 
Objection number four is the irrelevant objection, and it's kind of related to number three, but it raises the stakes and comes in at a cultural level, gets a little bit spicier, it goes like this. You know the real problems in our world? Racism, sexism, economic inequality, climate change, and gun violence. What are you doing about that? You can't convince me that a book written 2,000 years ago by a group of men on the other side of the world has anything to do with what's going on here now today. And the sooner we kick this thing to the curb and get on with fixing our world, the better. Now, I know that sounds angry to some of you, and I know it sounds spicy, but I promise you that that sentiment is far more prevalent than most of us are prepared to either acknowledge or answer. And our answer cannot be just join our Bible study, attend our services, or come hear our pastor. Goodness, no. Involvement and attendance and simple sermons are poor excuses for thoughtful engagement. In his fantastic book, The Unwavering Pastor, subtitle, Leading the Church with Grace in Divisive Times. One of the books I got to read over my sabbatical. Um, Pastor and author Jonathan Dodson puts it like this. Here's what he says. In seminary, I was trained to answer the question, is the Bible reliable? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Are miracles really possible? Each question is driven by the same important underlying question, is Christianity true? Very much my experience, by the way. Okay? He continues. However, today, people often, not all the time, but often, ask different questions. Considering the prospect of celibacy, my friend with same-sex attraction asks, Does God want me to be lonely and unloved? A frustrated person of color proclaims, preaching the gospel isn't enough, we need justice. A woman inquires, why does it seem like the church is against women? They are essentially asking, is the Bible sexist? Is Christianity racist? Is the church homophobic? Beneath these questions is an even deeper question, is Christianity good? People want to know if the new life Christianity offers is actually a good life. Nail on the head. So that's the irrelevant objection. You feel the heat turning up a little bit with these? Mm -hmm. Objection number five, this is probably the most personal. Objection number five is the injury objection. This one isn't hard to understand. It goes like this. Church is just too painful. Like Jesus, I like as Christians that, that hurt me. And the problem is the church is so often full of them and not often full of him. Anybody heard a variation of something like that in the last couple of years? Sure you have. The top of our news feeds, there's this undeniable rise of personal pain associated with the church, sexual misconduct, the falling and subsequent failing of Christian leaders who are supposed to hold a position of trust in our lives. You have the rise and fall of egocentric celebrity pastors where we get books like When Narcissism Comes to Church, great book, by the way, The Implosion of Ministries and the Internal Collapse of Local Churches. All of this kind of has me, who is obviously a pastor, but who's first and foremost a Christian, kind of scratching my head and going, is all this worth it? Do I want to align myself with that stereotype? I'm okay coming close to Jesus, but... Ah, ah, I don't know about that other stuff. Weighing the risk versus reward. You ever ask those questions? 
Sure you have. I have, again, just being honest. What happens when the character of Christians is so painfully different than the character of Christ? I could ask our students, text your 10 best friends, and get their reaction to the word church and Christian, and chances are you're probably going to have a pretty painful story come up. So that's the injury objection. So who's in? Have I talked you out of church yet? (laughs) I think those are all reasonable objections to church in 2023. And quick, quippy, trite, cute, bumper sticker answers don't always resolve the tension, do they? How should we reconcile all this? So a few weeks ago, um, my mom and dad took me out for brunch. It was my 42nd birthday, and we went to Samantha's on Portage, okay? The best thing I have ever eaten. It was amazing. Three words, cheese, pierogi, scrambler. (laughs) What's in that? The answer is all of your wildest dreams are in that. Pierogies, eggs, caramelized onions, kielbasa, bacon sautéed, and a maple glaze. (sighs) The meal was great, the conversation was great, the service was great, but then here's what happened next. My mom, who I love deeply, my mom, who knows me better than almost anyone, on my birthday, my mom brought the one thing that can reduce grown men into a crippling puddle of emotional goo. My mom brought with her my baby book. (laughs) This thoughtfully compiled scrapbook. My ink little baby footprints on the real page. That hospital picture with that like blue and pink blankie that like they've been doing forever, that. We sat and we actually read letters that my mom and dad wrote me when I was like a week old about the kind of man they hoped that I would become, the kind of life they hoped that I would live and how they were praying for me. I'm glad I had four pierogies in me at that point because I needed the carbs just to like get through that. (laughs) We sat there. Curious thing, for someone in the midst of a season of a little soul searching, at the end of a three-month sabbatical asking some very deep questions of the Lord, the whole experience had a remarkably centering effect. When you are questioning who you are, clarity is very crucial. Seeing that book was very humbling, very emotional, and it helped me see myself a bit more rightly. I left that meal feeling oddly more secure and somehow more like myself. And if it isn't too cheesy, pierogi pun absolutely intended, I want to take a look at the church's baby book together. I want to offer a portrait of what church once was as a vision for what church can still be. And so we're going to catch Luke, who's a doctor, who's a biographer, who's the compiler of the church's scrapbook. Almost mid-sentence, here's the scene, Acts chapter 2. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, follow along. Mid-sentence, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions 
and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, few observations and then a few conclusions. First thing we see in this text is a fourfold description around the word devotion. Look in verse 42. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. The Greek word for devotion means to persevere, to become single-minded, or to persist obstinately. I like that one. To be obstinate in your persistence. Well, what were they persistent in? The text gives us four things. The apostles' teaching. That's the first thing in verse 42. Let's imagine this. The early church, still reeling from the events of the resurrection, diverse ethnically, socially, even theologically, needed a center point, needed a guiding light. And what's going to guide them? Answer, what the twelve had originally heard from Jesus. This is fascinating to imagine what that teaching must have been like, right? Peter, do you remember when he taught us What was that he said when he pulled you up out of the waves, Peter? Can we talk about that again? What did he say to the woman at the well, the woman in the crowd? Do you remember how he crossed the threshold and invited himself into Zacchaeus' house? What was that about? Let's talk about that more. The earliest sermons were teaching by remembering. But we shouldn't see this as just a monologue. Follow me for a minute. Let's say you attend church once a week for the next 50 years of your life, okay? So your entire adult life. One 30-minute message, which, you know, come on, we all know that's a joke for me. 30 minutes, if you do that for 50 years, that adds up to 54 days. You can check my math, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Can you learn everything you need to know about Jesus in 54 days? No. There has to be something else. And so here comes the second obsession They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The apostles' teaching led somewhere. Hear me. Great teaching without great relationship is just a great lecture. (laughs) And that's coming from somebody who really loves preaching. (laughs) I think preaching is absolutely essential to Christianity, but it cannot be everything. The Greek word here for fellowship, which is such a great Christian word, is koinonia. It's a compound word, two words kind of smashed up together, and it could be translated as, get this, participation in the ordinary. What a great word. Lift it up and drop it into our context. It might sound like this. Hey, your mom's in the hospital. I'm bringing food over for your family tonight. Hey, you got to take your car in the shop? Borrow mine. Hey, how did your son's baseball practice go? I was praying for him today. I know he was nervous. I heard about the diagnosis. I'm so sorry. Remember, God's got you. I'm sorry that you and Jill are on the outs again. Remember, he holds you. I'm praying for your daughter. I'm so, so, so sorry. He's going to carry you through this. Don't give up. Our spiritual ancestors took the gospel they loved 
and overlaid it and embedded it in the lives of people they love, participating in the beautiful ordinary of life. The principle, nothing builds disciples like community. Why? Because information in isolation is short-sighted at best, dangerous at worst. Sunday's great, guys, I love it. But I got six more days in the week where I need you to give me the gospel, and you're the exact same way. Discipleship is a community project, right? I'm a pastor and I love preaching, but great teaching without great relationship is just a great lecture. For the church to be the church, it means participation in the beautiful ordinary. And I know that's so hard these days. I know it is so hard in our culture because we've been dealt a curveball. It's like starting a cold engine that's been sitting through a long winter, but it is so worth it, it is so essential. Third thing they were devoted to, you have teaching, you have the fellowship, you have the breaking of bread. And there's some debate about what this means, but the answer seems to be that this is a shared common meal, think old church potluck, that eventually turned into a celebration of the Lord's Supper. In fact, the Greek adds breaking of the bread, which seems to indicate that whatever bread Luke is talking about here is like a little more significant than just bread. Now, those are two things that don't go together for us very well, do they, right? Like, we got, like, church community fun, inflatable things, and, like, barbecue over here, and then we got, like, the somber stuff over here. But for the early church, there doesn't seem to be that kind of a sharp distinction. Now, why would the Lord's Supper be such a central feature in the early church? Quick answer, because Jesus' death and resurrection is what set the church apart from the surrounding culture. That was the center pin. So it makes sense that they then, as we now, celebrate the cross as the thing which gives the church its meaning. When the church treasures the gospel, God moves. It's that simple. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper at North Canton Chapel? Why do we sing songs about the cross? Why does everything I say from this pulpit, lectern, whatever, come back to the cross? Because that's it. That's our job. Fourth thing they were devoted to. You have teaching, you have a fellowship, you have breaking of the bread and prayers. Again, Luke includes the definite article here, so literally, the prayers. So what should we make of that? Because the early church, especially in Jerusalem, was largely Jewish and saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, fulfilling Old Testament law, serving as a sufficient Messiah, it's likely that they kept the rhythms and structures of their Jewish practice and prayer rituals. But now, instead of like praying for a future deliverer, they celebrated God's present deliverer, Jesus. They've got an answer for everything. And so their prayer life was praising God for his provision in the cross. I like to think about it like the Old Testament's like when you get a coloring book and then the New Testament comes in and now you have crayons. <laughs> Where you go, I had the structure, now I've got the color. It's so much more rich and so much more full of meaning. But let's go back to the text. Born out of this fourfold devotion, we get a fivefold result. What happens when a church is devoted to, obsessed with, obstinately persists in the right things? Here it comes, and if you're looking for this in the text, each result is signaled by the word and. First one. And awe came upon every soul. 
a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Something we've got to catch here is Luke is actually alluding to two other places in Scripture. The first one is way back in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, where Joel talks about what it's going to be like when the Holy Spirit poured out on God's people. Here's what he says. God says, I will show you wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below. But then Luke also wants to link this to Jesus himself. Here's how he describes Jesus earlier. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Do you see those words? Same words, like Joel, and then here Acts, and then here Acts again. Taken together, it means that Luke means that the movement of the early church showed that God was with them. Something inexplicable was happening. If you can explain everything that's happening in the church or in your own life, something is missing. Here's the point. It is possible to out-strategize the Spirit. It is possible to grow a church without making disciples. We can pack people in the doors all day long. Doesn't mean discipleship is happening. Hmm. Happens every Sunday all around our country, and that should scare us. Do you have a sense of awe? Second result, uncommon unity. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. I hesitate to say this, but I think this is worth bringing up. This isn't some form of proto-socialism. The socialist and the Christian do have something in common, at least on the face of things. They are concerned about the needs of others. The difference is how those needs get met. The socialist wants to put policies in place that ensure equality. The Christian doesn't need the policy because they're saying, I don't own this anyway. This is all God's. Take it. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. My home's up in glory somewhere beyond the blue. What do you need? That's this kind of does make me wonder if the rising tide of neo-socialism in our world today would be as appealing as it is if the church was as open-handed with our possessions as our spiritual ancestors were. I feel like I just threw a rock at a hornet's nest there. We're going to keep moving, right? Third result. Third result is remarkable generosity. Take a look in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There seems to be this sense that the church was very aware of the needs of their surrounding community, and then they gave as if by reflex to support those needs and to help those needs get fulfilled. It's worth remembering at this point that the church was made up of predominantly lower-class people. These were not people with a ton of economic padding and rich investment portfolios, and solid 401ks. But here they are, unloading all the stuff they no longer loved to care for the people who they did love. Fourth result, grateful community. Grateful community, verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Again, because they were largely ethnically Jewish at this point, this fledgling community met in a part of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. Solomon's Colonnade, or Solomon's Porch, was this area kind of off to the side that was devoted for 
less formal teaching, spontaneous discussion, and impromptu prayers. Best way you can think about this is if you were to gather a couple of your friends and your Bible and head over to Starbucks and have study and then invite anybody else who is interested or overheard something back to your house for dinner and a movie. Just this incredible fusion of gospel-saturated conversation and relationally charged activity. Fifth result, and this is kind of the band around the whole thing. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the emphasis in this. The early church grew because God made it grow. The church owes its existence to God alone. There's no other reason why this should exist. What does that mean for us today? Guys, here's what's kind of neat. I don't know if you know this, but the last three months, January, February, March, we have had one of the highest attended quarters we have had in the last five years on Sunday mornings. That's something to celebrate, and it tells me that you're doing just fine without me, and I should go on sabbatical more often. <laughs> but here's the point. I touched on it. Churches can grow for a lot of reasons. But churches only grow well when the gospel is prominent. <laughs> when the church treasures the gospel, God grows his church. So I hope the reason that you're here is because you love the gospel and are deeply committed to taking it deeper in here and wider out there. <laughs> so those are the five results. Sense of awe, uncommon unity, remarkable generosity, grateful community, supernatural growth. Those are the five results that come from those four wonderful devotions in verse 42. Now this is the baby book. And it is a little emotional to see, isn't it? But let's zoom out. What are we supposed to do with this? Great question. Glad you asked. Whenever we do these kind of like these deeper theological series, we wrap up the first week with a few kind of just basic principles. Um, so with those five objections laid out there in this text set firmly under our feet, here are a few principles that comprise the basic theology of the church. Number one, the church is people. If you've been at North Kent Chapel for longer than a month, you've heard this before, and it's something we become almost fanatical about. The church is not a building you go to. It is not an event you attend it's a people. We are the church. And that's more than splitting hairs or being cerebral, which I am a little want to do. <laughs> Here's why that's important. Buildings don't make disciples. Events don't make disciples. Even Sunday morning attendance doesn't make disciples. Concerts don't make disciples. Camps don't make disciples. Classes don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. <laughs> When I hear people say the church is this or the church is that, I want to go, you're talking about yourself. <laughs> if you trust Jesus for your salvation, if that's you, you are a part of the positionally lovely and practically imperfect thing called the church. And this is super important because when the church is a people, we are a people who believe something. What is that belief? What is this thing that binds us together? What makes all the difference? Principle number two. The church is a people joined by shared belief in Jesus' work. That's why we're here. It doesn't matter who you voted for. It doesn't matter what you thought about COVID or if you drink your coffee black like Jesus does. 
Let's not forget, in Jesus' own disciples, you got a Roman tax collector, basically the first century equivalent of a slimy IRS agent, right alongside a Jewish zealot who wanted nothing more than to overthrow the government. You got this upstart political lackey, don't tread on me flag in my front yard, working for a godless government, ready to turn the government upside down. And Jesus, for some reason, says, I want them both. Like a consultant should have popped out of the hedge and be like, that's a bad idea, Jesus. This is not going to go well. (laughs) Why does Jesus want that? Because Jesus changes everything and Jesus changes everyone. Because the gospel is the great leveler. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And because if anyone is in Christ, anyone, 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 anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. In the church, conservatives and liberals, Republicans, Democrats, united by Jesus' stereotype-smashing work on the cross, to see another affiliation as more descriptive of your identity is to devalue the cross and to demean his work, and I don't think you want to do that. Jesus makes all the difference, and so no worldly institution should be able to out-unity the local church. Let me get personal, because I think I need to give you something to do with this one. (laughs) When I get discouraged, which happens, or when I get cynical, which happens, do you want to know what pulls me out of the gutter and restores a sense of empathy? Hearing how Jesus is working in the lives of others. If you're burned out on church, one easy thing you can do today, find someone whose walk with Jesus you admire and ask them, what is Jesus doing in your life? And then just listen. The ongoing work of Jesus has a remarkably restorative effect on a cynical soul. The band is going to come out in just a second, but one last principle. I'm going to push this a little further forward. The church is a people joined by shared belief in Jesus' work, living on mission together. Attendance is not the goal. Church growth is not the goal. Bigger budgets, better buildings, and more bodies in the chairs, not the goal. Do you want to know the mark of a maturing disciple? When someone moves from being a recipient of the church's programs to someone who is responsible for the church's mission. I'm not the first person to say that, but I want to bold, italic, underline, highlight that. When you move from being a recipient of the church's programs to someone who's responsible for the church's mission. You saw this in our opening video, and it's where we've got to land the plane today. We do what we do because of what Jesus has done. There's a lost and dying world out there, and we have a high calling, and we have wonderful work ahead of us. It's going to be a great month together in this series. I'm so glad to be with you, and I want to pray. So bow with me. Lord, we need your help. Because this is hard. And it's getting harder. We have our eyes and our ears open, and we see our world. This is your world, and you are still king, and you're still on the throne, but it is so hard. We watch the news and we watch our own hearts, Lord. Keep us from being cynical. Sink our roots more deeply in you. Make something out of us, Lord. 
We want to be that new creation that you speak of. Help those old things to fall away. Let us release those things with open hands and we can hold you more tightly. Lord, we love you. Bless us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.